Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, Oliver here. Uh, I have an exciting interview this week with Sam Baker, the CEO of Wonder Mobility, about mobility as a service platforms and underpinnings. I was very surprised with this interview. I went in thinking we were going to be talking about mobility as a service, uh, and we ended up talking a lot about ride hailing and carpooling, and then micromobility, obviously my background's at Uber, uh, and they've managed to do things that I didn't manage to do or didn't think that we could do when we were at Uber. I found this a very, very interesting interview for myself. Uh, And then we got into micromobility, and these guys have built platform plays that I think digitize the 99% of the world that isn't Uber or Lyft or Lime or Bird. Wonder hadn't been on my radar, and they are now. So uh, I would really recommend you go check them out. Uh, But in the meantime, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Twilio. Shared micromobility, as we're about to find out, uh, is a deceptively hard business. You keep losing your connection to those vehicles, and soon you will not have a business. Um, And that's where Twilio comes in. They do a global IoT connectivity platform that helps companies like Lime, Skip, Spin, Beam to keep their vehicles connected and to cost-effectively help them scale faster and deploy further while optimizing their supply chain. Twilio is also the global leader for SMS and phone number verifications to help reduce fraud and improve compliance. So are you looking for the right global connectivity partner to scale with? Twilio is offering free SIMs and test credit to Micromobility podcast listeners. Click the link in the podcast description to find out more. But in the meantime, go check out this awesome interview with Sam. And we're back. We have with us today Sam Baker. COO of Wonder. How are you doing today? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. No stress at all. Um, where where we find you in the world? You you are you uh, you look like you're in a hotel room on this uh, on this video chat. Yes, I'm actually sitting in downtown Los Angeles at the moment, um, participating in commotion here. So if you hear any urban sounds in the background, apologies in advance. How how is uh, how is commotion going? There's a lot of people there. Yes, I'm getting messages from people all over the world, hardware providers, software platform companies, just about anyone that you'd want to meet in mobility. It seems like is here right now. Yeah, we've got James Gross, who's the the co-founder of the Micromobility Conference, and uh, Luke, who writes the newsletter uh, for Micromobility Industries there, which is pretty cool. Um, hey, well, look, I wanted to dig in because Wonder, I got some pretty exciting news for, about you guys. You just raised sixty mil, which. I think was really cool. And I, to be honest, uh, I mean, I'd heard of you in passing, but not in the micromobility context. And so what I thought would be uh, a really cool thing for me, because I imagine a lot of the audience is probably in the same boat, uh, would be you just go and take us through what is Wonder? What was the story behind it? And how did you guys start? Um, and, and then we can get into micromobility stuff in, in, in later. Sure. Happy to tell the story of Wonder. The company was founded in 2014 by my co-founder originally, Gunnar, who started off with a ride-sharing concept very similar to Lyft, but in Germany. It was actually the first sort of private car ride-hailing concept in the German market. And uh, the challenge of operating in the German context is the regulatory environment is quite strict. And I entered 
<laughs> maybe to put it diplomatically yeah yeah i i was at uber i germany was always that like oh this is there's 60 million people there and they're all you know they're all really well off we could only crack this market <laughs> well i'm sure we'll get to it later in the conversation i mean there's definitely something to be said about the role of cities and the regular regulators and the future of transportation that's extremely important and so on the one hand i completely understand where it's coming from on the other hand we do want to innovate with new types of transportation technologies and at the time it was a bit difficult to convince the authorities that uh, there was something to be had in sort of sharing vehicles in the city in any case gunnar had started this company in 2014 and i entered the scene about a year into it and we were trying to raise around a funding on the basis of scaling up a ride hailing concept in europe and the feedback that we were getting from vcs was there's no way that you're going to be able to do an uber like concept in the market because uber has locked down every vertical of transportation they're going to get every geography they're going to get every type of mode of transportation you really have no chance and we were trying our best to cast a vision for the future of mobility around regional champions and you know it's not as hard as you think to build liquidity in cities um provide a service level based on a limited amount of cars and we were not so successful to be very honest with you about conveying this vision of a pure ride hailing concept and so we had to adjust our business model and we veered into the direction of carpooling and the concept that we came up with for investors was to say is there a way that we can produce supply more cheaply meaning capture those folks that are driving their car to work and are going along a predefined route and are going to be doing it anyway and can they take people with them on the way to work for a very low rate and we were able to raise around a round of funding based on this concept and we launched in the philippines of all places in manila and this was based around some basic research and testing we've done to say where are the cities where there's high level of congestion low incomes and at the same time the cost of car ownership is really high and when those factors came together bam you have a market that's ripe for carpooling interesting i was working on the uberpool team in australia and i went and did a lot of research into pool and it's such a challenging problem and that's to just do the matching and then you have on like a whole nother layer on that which is if you're not incentivizing the driver really specifically um as in it's already going in that direction but you're but you know it's it's a sort of like low intent driver i can imagine that's an incredibly challenging uh thing to it, well all of the experiments uber's ever done in the commute product space hasn't has <laughs> never worked and i'm very curious about how you guys did when you in manila i mean is that still is that where you go i mean you don't only do that because when i've looked at your website you do a lot more than just that i i take where did where did you go after that what happened there Yeah so from from the carpooling in Manila we actually expanded this uh, business to consumer or another way of putting it is peer to peer so we're actually providing the technology to the end consumer directly and marketing under the Wonder brand we expanded that into India and then into Brazil and at this point we we really got a, to a scale that was much much larger than we ever accomplished in ride hailing in Europe and it really started to take off and the reason why it took off was because we figured out the right way to identify cities where there was a real pain point and this sort of magical balance between income levels car ownership costs and just the hassle of not having access to reliable and comfortable public transit and so for us it was more about identifying the right cities to be in and starting very small and building liquidity on very defined routes and that sort of became the formula how we were able to scale up the carpooling concept Cool. So talk me through that part. So you've got um would 
when you say that uh, you build liquidity on a route, that sounds to me like you identify a business that has a large campus and says, we've got 6,000 or 10,000 employees. We want them all to, because all of these, anytime you run a large site like that, you need to have traffic demand management plans because otherwise everybody turns up in a car and then you never have enough car parking. So how does how does that work for, for the companies that do buy? I'm really curious about the carpooling thing, by the way. I'm just, we'll get to micromobility, but I'm just curious that you built a carpooling system that worked. Um, yeah, what talk, talk me through that part of the business. So building liquidity on a route means that we are micro-targeting normally with online advertising specific routes in the city that are um, known to be popular for commuters that are typically in middle-class office jobs. So these are folks that own cars, but are typically under some sort of financial pressure. I mean, if you think about it in the context of Manila, you might average office worker maybe earning 800 US dollars per month. A Toyota cars still cost $15,000 sort of baseline, right? So kind of put that into perspective. And so we're trying to target those business uh, areas, business parks, where there's a high density of those types of office workers, and they're driving their cars typically to work. And then the sort of bedroom communities that they are coming from. So the typical suburban areas that are the feeders of those particular office parks. And so we're literally doing targeted online advertising in both of those areas, both the office parks where they work and then also in the areas where, where they live and trying to then regulate on a day-to-day basis how many drivers and passengers that you have at a very small scale in the beginning and then increasingly ensuring that there's a balance between enough passengers and enough enough drivers. And for the most part, we experimented with offline advertising and all sorts of other ways of reaching people, but really the online advertising is um, something that we found to be the most effective and at a certain level of user base, you can actually start using referrals, which kind of becomes the engine. And the referrals are typically people they know in their network that work in the same office, and then they're onboarded on the platform. And so if you can kind of jumpstart it with online advertising, just in targeted areas, and then start a referral engine from there on, then you can start to build traction. And one of the things that's really important also is the, the trust and the incentive structure. So the trust part, you have to convince people we found. And I think what was a challenge with Uber, which also tried to enter the market, is that they approached it with the same technology platform, which is not, let's say, like a peer-to-peer platform at its base, right? It's very different than an Airbnb. Like you're signing up with your credit card and your name, and you're not really expected to give much more information. Whereas the way we approached it is more Airbnb-like, where you have to fill out a profile and you have to say where you work. You have to give a lot of personal identifying information. You have to verify your work email address and sort of the environments where we're operating carpooling, we're operating carpooling directly. Someone is not going to get in a car with a stranger that they don't know a lot of information about. And once you get to the point of having enough trustworthy people on the platform, then your brand itself becomes trustworthy. So then the wonder carpool becomes at this point, place where people go and they know they can get a reliable ride at an affordable rate and it kind of builds from there that's awesome um and so the yeah the, i agree this the way i think uber approached it was uh, it came from the world of like we've got these drivers who are incentivized in this particular way and it's a it's a challenging thing to kind of retrofit your business around when it's a lot more p2p focused and requires that trust just to note on that it's a it's a great point i mean if you we found that you can all you can also not really incentivize a non-professional driver 
to do a huge detour, right? So this is another challenge. Like I think the assumption in some platforms is there's sort of like unlimited incentives that are possible. But if someone's trying to get to work, you know, and just to keep on using Manila as an example, I hate to pick on one city, but, you know, it's like three or four hours per day on average spent in traffic. And then if you tell someone like, hey, why don't you do another 30 to 45 minute detour? That's a, a huge amount of time extra on top of an already very full, very stressful schedule. And so even if you pay someone a lot of money, they're like, I'm working 10 hours a day. I, I don't want to have extra money to go an hour out of my way. I want to go see my family. And so what we try to do is really align the whole product around the driver saying, this is where I'm driving. And then all the passengers have to orient around them. And that's really the exact opposite of the way a ride hailing application is structured, where it's all about the driver orienting around the passenger. And sort of this is a very fundamental approach to product development that you have to think about from the beginning, right? Totally. And I think there's there's something quite interesting as well, which is if you if you if the app specifically is built with that intent in mind, so the, the user experience right from the get-go is like I know with Wonder that the driver is the one that I'm going to rather than the other way around. It's a different level of entitlement, I would imagine, for the rider. Um, anyhow, your business shifted from you were running your own service, which is like the Wonder service itself, to uh, companies contracting you. How did that work? It, you bring up an interesting question. Over time, we started to get interesting inbound interest from larger automotive companies, tier one automotive suppliers that came to us and said, you know, we'd really like to either A, acquire your company or B, we'd like to license your technology. And this started to sort of get us thinking like, wow, the the team and the technology that we've built up is not just applicable to one use case. And so we started experimenting with licensing technology as a platform and some of using some of our experiences launching mobility services in diverse contexts around the world. And we started licensing our technology to larger companies. And to make a long story short, the, the kind of revenues that we were able to make and the kind of traction we were able to get in licensing our technology at some point started far outpacing what we were doing in our own core peer-to-peer carpooling platform to the point where over the past few years we've actually shifted to being entirely business-to-business focused software as a service provider across a variety of different modes in transportation. So now Wunder Mobility as it exists, which used to be called Wunder Carpool, is actually a much more comprehensive technology company in terms of enabling other cities, corporates and operators to launch their own mobility services. And so we're really an enabler or a tool at this point for others to scale their own services. So our customers are cities, existing transportation operators and corporates that want to start or want to optimize an existing transportation business. So I'm not necessarily just talking about employee transportation, although we do provide transportation service platforms to employers, the bulk of our business is actually coming from, let's call them legacy operators that want to digitalize an existing transportation offering. So we're actually providing them a technology to run a business on which they make money, or and in some many cases have done this for a very long time. So one of the largest micromobility operations in Europe, which is owned by Daimler, is powered by Windows Software, for example, right? So we're actually operating in the back end and no one really needs to know on an end consumer basis that Wonder technology is underlying that system. We're also powering large car sharing fleets. Uh, we're powering uh, major carpooling networks among um, corporates in Germany. And so we're doing a variety of different things now, but it's on 
sort of a back end basis. And it's not just with employers, it's also with companies that are actually running their businesses, their core businesses on the Wonder platform. So you guys started out doing carpooling, then you got into the back end of, you know, other, other services as well. Um, and you, and you've just raised a bunch of money, um, to go and launch into the U S but at its core as well, you also see, you're obviously building solutions for micromobility players. Like you're doing scooters, for example, back end, back end, um, frameworks for scooters, et cetera. Um, what's the sort of products that you operate in the, in the micromobility space? Sure. So we started talking about ride hailing and then carpooling. And since then we've really diversified the offering that we have of different sort of pillars of mobility in terms of our, what our core platform operates. So we have the carpooling, we have ride sharing. We also have vehicle sharing, which includes both four wheel and two wheel vehicles, cars and scooters mopeds even as well. We also have a smart parking solution as well as a rental product for, let's say, a more legacy rental operator that wants to digitalize their fleets and allow a higher level of convenience for their customers. That is also a solution we offer. So we call this the Wonder Mobility OS or operating system, which is a comprehensive platform that allows our partners to operate any sort of the key mobility businesses that are common in the industry right now out of the box. Cool. Well, this is the conversation that I really want to get into with you, which is like mobility as a service and then how, because in some ways, right, we, we look at micromobility as being interesting about the vehicles, but Horace and I, um, most of the time you end up talking to Horace, Horace is like, no, 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 it's, it's not that. It's the, it's the fact that it's connected to the network. It's almost like a phone, blah, 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 blah. I'm just trying to think of the parallel in the telecommunications sense as to what you, how you would position yourself um, if we were to look at the transportation world. Help me out here, Sam. It's a really, it's a really interesting analogy. Uh, we there's there's a reason why we say the Wonder Mobility Operating System, which doesn't mean that we provide every single service and every software feature or capability, but we can provide a common platform and a language that different elements of the mobility infrastructure can speak to one another. So, what does this mean in practice? Well, if an operator that is owning a micro mobility fleet is using the core Wonder platform. We actually have an an open philosophy for how we structure our technology, which means that we support connections to many of the major vehicle brands in the market, as well as the leading telematics or IoT solutions. And so through these partnerships, someone who has an existing fleet or someone that wants to plug in different types of hardware assets in the future can actually seamlessly do that with the Wonder platform. So if you want to think about it as sort of the philosophy that Android has in the mobile operating space, many new companies can build new products and services on top of Android or connect existing ones to Android. That's exactly how we think about our technology. So in the future, let's say an operator has a analytics tool that they're using to help them distribute the vehicles in their fleet in an optimal way. Well, Wonder either already supports that integration or we will soon support that integration because we want to be the main connection point for all of these best-in-class products and services in in the market. So we can say to um, an IoT company, we'd love to support you on our platform so that anyone that wants to buy your IoT and plug them into their vehicles can do so seamlessly and, 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 and almost overnight. And then if we go into things like public transportation, buses, other, have you, have you, I mean, if we look at the, the total trip distribution, 
most car like most most trips in in the OECD would be done in cars and then you have some that are done in buses and trains and then you have sort of like a very small amount that's done in motorbikes and that's a very very small but very fast growing um, uh, percentage that are done on kind of ride hailing and or micro mobility um how do you think about the other parts of that of that equation at the moment if you're thinking about building an, an os like I, I get it in theory I, I i don't worry i mean been thinking about these os uh so people building os since i was at uber um and i think someone's going to build it i'm curious who becomes the forcing function about getting every everything on board on on a a single operating system so that they can all talk to each other. I'm glad you brought it up. When you look at the data for the U.S. market specifically, 1% of daily trips in cities are currently managed through the Lyft and Uber apps. And this is despite a lot of attention in the media talking about the disruption of Uber and Lyft on our society and new transportation methods. And it's quite surprising when you look that 99% of trips are actually not done through apps like that. The rest is a long tail of public transit operators, people riding their bike, walking, uh, owning their own car and driving to work. And so what we see is the real opportunity is how do we actually digitalize the 99% and work with those companies that are providing those transportation services or those, the transportation assets and to help them be more efficient and make more money at the end of the day, right? And so if another analogy that you can think about is thinking about Wonder as a sort of Amazon Web Services of the present day. Ten years ago, if we were to start a website company together, we would have to go out and procure servers, we'd have to build a room, and we'd have to hire engineers that know how to set it up, and then we could actually start engineering and building our product Whereas today, if you know we wanted to start a you know do an app, on, on, we, you know we we wouldn't do that, right? I mean, we would we would work with Amazon, we work with Google or Microsoft, and we would just rent the space. And it is then it is allowed for this proliferation of startups that can start with much less cost and much less risk. And so, Wonder, in a sense, is acting as a, a similar platform where if you wanted to start a mobility service in a low cost and a low risk way and really experiment with technology. And if you wanted to scale that, if you have the, you don't have the ability to, or you don't have the intention of becoming a software technology company, then this is a great option for for you. It's because what we can offer out of the box is every basic component that you need in an extremely cost-effective way. And it's also done with a high level of quality and scalability. So talk me through the micromobility aspect of all of this, because obviously you saw burden line kind of take off and i assume at that stage you you were getting inquiries which is other people in this space are saying oh crap we should probably get into this um but what it, what's the interesting stuff that you're seeing in micromobility yeah sure so i think what's really interesting is to see the differences um, between the dynamics of cities in europe and in north america and this is where we have two emphasis areas obviously being a company that's from europe based in germany and then now expanding to the united states Micromobility seen as really taking off in European cities at a much faster pace and then it seems than in North America. And one of the reasons for this is the way that cities are built. And you can imagine that uh, many of the of the cities in Europe were designed centuries ago. Um, 
some of the cities are even medieval in, in, um, in terms of the, the center and the core. And so if you were to drive a car to downtown and look for a parking spot, you would take a very long time uh, to find one. Cities are simply not built for, for automobiles. And so to have a scooter, for example, that's electric, that you can park anywhere, and that is relatively low cost is extremely convenient and is is and also has enabled uh, much more seamless uh, trips around around cities in, in Europe at the moment. Um, compare that to North America, where you have infrastructure that was built for the automobile only 70, 80 years ago, and you can find a parking space anywhere. You have urban sprawl um, with uh, low density in um, areas where people are living, and it becomes a lot harder to find as many locations where the density is there and the inconvenience is high enough to make it simply a factor of you know five times better to take a scooter than say driving a car, and that's one of one of the things that that we've really noticed. Which isn't to say that sharing concepts in general don't work in the U.S. context just means that we need to be more selective about the locations and then how to apply the technology and the business model in a slightly different way. So if you want to roughly categorize it, we see in the European context, micromobility really scaling in dense urban centers. And in North America, it's really it's about the car and how to better utilize the asset that is the the four wheel vehicle. Uh, Have you got any micromobility experiments in the U.S. at this stage? Um, We have some that will be announced soon. Cool. They tend, they will be in dense urban settings, which are similar to the European context. Um, <laughs> Code for so New York and Boston, and uh, yeah, exactly, DC. yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so it's not, it's not as if there are not cities that are like European cities in the in the U.S. in terms of characteristics. There definitely are. Um, but there are room for other business models. So when you have a more sprawling, then the ride sharing does make sense because then you can have the vehicles actually go to you, right? So we're going to be deploying with some ride sharing partners in the coming months, and we'll be able to talk more about that soon. And that really makes sense in cities that are more spread out and where you don't have to worry about someone, say, having to walk for 20 or 30 minutes to get to the nearest car. That's one of the challenges that you have in so-called free-floating car sharing concepts in the North American market. Then for micromobility, do you you have any, I mean, I guess you have data and insight about how they're being used. Can you uh, can you share any insight in terms of what you're seeing for scooter operators versus, for example, uh, e-mopeds versus, for example, like car sharing? Because I'll, I'll provide the, the context to this, which is I was in Berlin uh, for the micromobility conference. And while we were there, I was blown away. We could rent Volkswagen the e-golf um, for s- about the same price so we had four of us and we took it and it cost us seven euros to drive across town for 20 minutes. I mean, it was like bananas. And we were like, what? Compared to the price of the scooters, this is like, this is so ridiculously cheap. But tip, but we we would have taken the scooters, but it was just such a long distance that we ended up taking the car. Um, weird pricing thing. Uh, but but in terms of the, you, you would have obviously multimodal trip distributions. You kind of know what people are going to be using these services for. Um, is there anything interesting in terms of an insights when you can see all of those different services interoperating next to each other? It's an interesting observation about scooter pricing versus car sharing. What's interesting is that you see a, a variety of different actors getting into the mobility scene and they, they all have different 
ways of financing their underlying assets. So let me give you an example. So one of the, I think, most impressive mobility entrants recently is Sixt, which is the largest automotive rental company in Europe, which is originally from Germany. And um, they've been in the market with a classic car rental model for um, decades now and have been very successful, actually publicly listed, profitable, and um, run a very, very powerful business, I would say, overall. And they've actually launched a multi-mobility app, which includes car rental, free-floating car sharing, as well as ride-hailing all-in-one application, and a variety of really interesting features like being able to rent a free-floating car sharing car and then drop it off at a car dealership anywhere in Germany with a very modest fee so that you have this kind of like flexibility of you know, driving around the city, but then also driving out of the city, almost as if you own the car um, and leaving it anywhere you want in the country, right? So this is very, very unique. And the reason and the pricing is very competitive. And one of the reasons why the pricing can be competitive is because they already have the existing dealership infrastructure and the logistical infrastructure to move cars around. And they also already have incredibly competitive pricing coming from the automotive companies because they've been working with them for years and are getting they're they're buying massive fleets so so you know you take that underlying infrastructure that they built about rental and they're able to again with digitalization to apply a really compelling business model for the the end consumer so i guess what i'm saying is you know you have to kind of look at who are the underlying players that are bringing these services to market because they might have a competitive advantage in a particular asset class like I would argue, based on what what I know, that Sixt is world class in managing car assets, and so it wouldn't surprise me if they can provide an incredibly competitive per minute price for for their cars, even even longer term, right? Because they've really figured this out. So so that's one thing to watch out for in the future, and it's going to be really interesting to see in five or ten years, like who are the really big players going to be in mobility, and it's probably going to be the companies that are able to to match world-class operations and sort of asset utilization management of which the legacy players are you know, very good at this many of these companies, butter, right? Like, this is the stuff that they're good this at. This is yeah, what yeah. they do. I like think this it, is, <laughs> I think about the like billions of dollars that have been put into, to, to scooters and the fact that like, you, what do you mean the assets only outlasted like 28 days in the beginning? Like this is madness, you know, and there's no way that you could all the, all the, I imagine all the car guys going like, what are they doing? <laughs> like, this is not, anyway. Yeah, and it's, it's, I was in a, I was at a fleet management comp- conference in Nashville uh, last year, and there was a question from the audience, from uh, someone who owns a large fleet management company, you know, what role do, do the, do us fleet management companies have in the future of mobility when all of these tech companies are coming out of California and everything. And I said, you know, it's interesting because I have conversations a lot with technology companies and their biggest challenge is often operations and sort of building this competency around how do you finance assets? How do you utilize them? Um, how do you depreciate them in a really efficient way? And I would imagine that most of the people in this room have figured this out decades ago and, you know, you're running successful businesses. And what's really interesting to see is how can we marry that knowledge with software platforms and technology and doing uh, maybe more complex uh, end user marketing online. And if those two things come together, it can be a very, very powerful business. So my main message to them was the role of operations is going to be increasingly important, particularly when 
we start looking very, very closely at the profitability of these business models in the long term. And there's definitely going to be a massive role for legacy transportation players from fleet management companies to public transit operators and cities will play an increasing role in the future as well. I mean, this is not something that has not been figured out, right? It's just a question of how can we improve the end user experience? How can we better leverage the assets that are already on the road? Our biggest realization in the past years at Wonder Mobility is that in the future, building the basic mobility platforms is not going to be something that is going to be done in-house for the 99%. It's something that players such as Wonder Mobility have already kind of figured out how to do at scale. It's going to be about leveraging those existing platforms that are there and then adding on top of it new modules to be able to provide a better service to the end customers. We are seeing a lot of traction in working with the 99% of most of transit operators using our core technology. And um, we're looking forward to doing that more in the coming years, especially with um, the growing segment of cities, which are having an increasing influence on the transportation and the sharing operations in cities. Yeah, absolutely. Before we finish, if if there was going to be one one app to rule them all, in the in the mobility, you know, in terms of owning the customer, all the way through to being the sort of the thing that plugs in and the thing that cities trust and um, the place that all the operators go to, who do you think is best placed to win that at the moment? Speaking for myself personally, I don't think that there will be one app to rule them all. Um, if if we can work out this challenge of interoperability, so as I was speaking about you know, Wonder as an operating system that can create connectivity between the hardware um, and different software services that allow operators to really scale the systems, this kind of open architecture will enable us to connect with many types of front ends for the user, right? So you could think about it sort of the way that the travel space works now if you're going to book an airline ticket. There are multiple portals that you can go to where you can book an airline ticket, but there's underlying infrastructure that's been standardized to a degree that allows a kayak.com or a booking.com to pull on that travel information and make bookings on behalf of passengers. And I can imagine that it'll be similar for ground transportation in cities. And we want to be one of the major players in providing that underlying infrastructure so that if you wanted to start your own portal in the future to provide this end service of every transit option in the city, that we want to be able to, in a standardized way, allow you to access operators that are running on our platform, book trips, you know, request um, the rides, maybe even process payments as well on the platform as well. So what you're likely to see in that concept is regional sites emerging, applications emerging that have significant market share. But I, I I don't see it as being likely that there's only one portal in the world where everyone accesses the transportation. It'll be it'll still have we'll still have a diversity of options as well, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a that's a very interesting point. The the standardization uh, question, I think, is one that we've really dug into a lot on this podcast because we've been obviously with the emergence of MDS and trying to understand what those like what the standards are. Um, 
you have GTFS for, for transit and then is there going to be a, an equivalent one that, for example, allows you to walk along and unlock a scooter um, regardless of the operator um, and have all the payments facilitated? And originally, I, you know, I had been I had been bullish. Obviously, I come from Uber. I, th- I thought maybe they might have a chance at it. Um, but I but I agree with you. It's a quite a highly fragmented market. Right. And it's so and it's so complex. I don't think one company can own the entire thing in, by itself. Um, the one part that we haven't actually discussed yet is, is payments, just because it's so, it, it strikes me as being so complex to be able to nail the interoperability of payments between all those things. But I think that's one of those um, those parts that will eventually just get solved with better fintech and, and that sort of thing as well. One of our core hypotheses is that the role of cities right now is being really underappreciated in new mobility models. And you know, cities are responsible for the comfort and safety of the citizens that live in those cities. And they're playing an increasing role in, in a first step, regulating and providing guidelines for these private mobility operators, which is, again, I think that's their role. And it, and, and it really makes sense. That's why we have city governments. Um, in the future, they might even get more involved in operating those services themselves, maybe not exclusively, but in parallel to or to complement the private operators in the cities. And to the extent that the cities are more involved, it may force a level of standardization. I mean, we're seeing examples in Los Angeles and um, and in uh, Paris and in, in, in few cities in Germany that are saying, you know, um, if you want to operate on our city streets with a private transportation concept, you have to provide us the data, right, to see what's going on. And an example of this is, you know, we have a product called uh, Wonder City, which is like a dashboard concept that we we've built together with the city of Hamburg, where we're we're headquartered, and before. Micromobility operators launched theirs recently legalized in Germany. They said, you know, you can get a permit to operate in our streets, but part of the deal is you really have to share your data with us so we can see what's going on. And it's not for policing purposes. It's for learning. It's for making decisions about how to implement it in the best way for the citizens. And so these type of requirements are going to force some sort of standardization, right? In terms of how data is flowing back and forth between the city and the private operators. And that can have a secondary positive benefit, which is if we're starting to speak the same language, then maybe we can have better operability between systems. And when we have better operability between systems, I would argue that the market itself can grow faster, right? So Oh, precisely. And that's and that's where the, the mobility data specification comes in. That's been that's very popular in the US and for some reason I don't understand, but Europe hasn't built a standard yet for, for data sharing across all the different cities. It's funny because normally the Europeans are the first to go and do all of this sort of stuff, but um no, it seems to be that the US coming out of LA first and then uh, and then now through the Open Mobility Foundation, that's um that that's an effort that's being really, really aggressively pursued. Yeah, we when we were looking into it for the Wonder City product, we actually ended up on the um, the standard from LA, and so we're actually using that same data standard as well, and uh, in the European context with European cities. Yeah, that's the that's the MDS standard. That's the the one that I was talking about, the the mobility data standard. Excellent. Well, look, I, I I'm aware you need to run, and I need to run. So, uh, but I just want to say thank you. That was this has been such an interesting conversation. If nothing else, because I finally learned that there is a company that did manage to crack carpool somewhere in the world. Look, this is such an interesting idea to come to this with. Look, uh, that that there isn't going to be a thing that wins. So, um. Cool. Well, look, uh, I really appreciate it. Is there, if, if folks want to track you down online, how would they do that? Are you on Twitter? Well, you can go to, for Wonder, you can go to wondermobility.com. And yep. um, 
for LinkedIn, you can go to Samuel Ross Baker. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Happy to chat. And um, I really appreciated your time, Oliver. Very interesting conversation. And you're welcome to visit us anytime you're in Hamburg or Los Angeles. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. All right. Cheers. Thanks a lot.